0: Well, happy Tuesday evening to everybody. Thank you all for, for being here tonight. Um, we have um, a good solid hour or so to go tonight, and I, I'm going to go ahead and just sort of warn at the front end, this is, this is going to be covering a lot of material very quickly for a long time. Now, that may be the worst combination of things you can possibly hear. When you sit down on a Tuesday night, some of you are probably exhausted from from whatever you may have been doing today or this week, so uh, just lots to cover, an important topic, but here's the thing I think I can say… Tyler and I may may try not to ruin this, but we we can at least say Hebrews 7 has so much wonderful stuff to to give us as a result of our careful study through some of these difficult passages that I think Hebrews 7 will make this very, very worth our time to see how this stuff applies to our life. We will all sort of be tempted to 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 zone out because… When you get into the technical, historical stuff from the time of Abraham and David, you go, well, what does this have to do with me? But it really does have to do with our life and better understanding the gospel of Jesus. So, and see if you can find Matthew chapter 22, which is where we're going to start, and then we're going to go backwards. Okay, so Matthew chapter 22. I want to start with Jesus' view of an an important passage tonight. So, this is Jesus' last week of His earthly life before His crucifixion. This is moving into that week where He's beginning to have confrontations with Pharisees, Sadducees, all the Jewish religious leaders who who at this point are are going to reject Him that Friday, uh, on Good Friday. And earlier that week, He's having debates with them. You know, they're asking Him all those trick questions, you know. Ladies lady's married to seven different people because they all keep dying in the resurrection. Whose wife? will you know, that all… So, Jesus keeps kind of answering all their hard questions. Who should we pay taxes? Do we pay him to Caesar or not? And finally, Jesus sort of turns the tables and asks them a question. You better look out when Jesus turns the tables and asks you a question in this moment. So here's what Jesus wants to bring up. Look at uh, Matthew 22, verse 41. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question saying, "'What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he?' They said to him, "'The son of David.' He said to them, "'How is it then that David, in the Spirit, calls him, that is the Messiah, Lord, saying, "'The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet.'" if David then calls him the Messiah, Lord, how is he his son? Your father, the father was always greater than the son. That's why Abraham was the greatest of the Jews, because he's the father of all, right? So there's no question. David, if he's the great, 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 great grandfather of the Messiah, David's greater because the Messiah is his son, just his son. But David knew something by the inspiration of the Spirit, because it says he spoke by the Spirit, Jesus said. He knew that his Son, the Messiah, was not merely his Son, but he was also David's Lord. Now how can the Son be called the Lord by the Father? Do you get this? The father's greater than… the Son should call the Father, my Lord, in the sense of, you know, lowercase l. Why is David saying, my Lord, to his Son? And the answer is, by the Spirit, David knew that the Messiah was not just a man. There was more going on. That David is calling Him his Lord, and so Jesus is saying, hey, the Messiah is the Son of David. He's not denying that here. Jesus knows that. But He's saying He's far more than just the Son of David. So let's flip to the left to Psalm 110. And as you're turning there, you may already know this, this is the most quoted chapter of the Old Testament in the New Testament by a pretty long shot. Uh, it gets quoted all over the place. Hebrews quotes it alone many times. And the verses that are quoted repeatedly are verses 1 and verses 4. So just… I'm just going to read through it quickly. Psalm 110, a psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. He will drink from the brook by the way; therefore, he will lift up his head. Now, what's interesting here is the Messiah, the Son of David, David's Lord, uh, is not just the king; he's also called a starts with a P. He's also called a priest. And if you remember, um, there was a I won't go there right now, but there was there was a famous king Uzziah in Israel's history. Remember Isaiah's vision in the year that King Uzziah died? That king, he had reigned in Israel for a little over 50 years, half a century, and he was actually one of the better kings in Israel's history. And uh, it says, when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction. One of the most terrifying statements you could read about a life of a human being. When he was strong, after 40 plus years of being a good king, he grew proud to his destruction. And what does he do that was so terrible? He goes into the temple. And he seeks to perform the acts of a priest when he's the king, but not a priest. And he goes in there and begins, he wants to offer sacrifice inside the temple. And the priests rush in and say, Uzziah, you must not do this. You mu- this is not lawful for you to do this. This is only for the job of the Levitical priest. And he says, I don't care, basically, what you say. And he can the act. While he's in the temple, leprosy breaks out on his forehead, a judgment from God. He flees out of the temple. He spends the last several years of his kingship isolated from the temple as a leper until until the moment of his death. So here's, here's one of the tensions we're going to be talking about tonight, which is how can a Davidic king, the Lord Jesus, be a priest if that was off limits, right? And by the way, Saul also, this, the king before David, got in some trouble because remember he offered the sacrifice. He wasn't waiting and he offered a sacrifice and he gets in trouble. So there's multiple signs. You don't mix the king with the priest. Those are separate things. And so here you're seeing a picture that the Messiah will be both king and priest. And we want to start thinking about how this could have been thought of. How, where is, how is that legal? How could that be? And so we're going to come back to Psalm 110, Lord willing, but now we're going to turn to Genesis chapter 14. Tyler, would you like to, to oh give us a little bit about Genesis 14 as we, as we uh, get situated in
1: it? I think you have this,
0: Mike. I think you're doing quite well with explaining
1: this. <laughs> I'm going to get you
0: in soon, Tyler. So it, when you get to Genesis 14, if you're, if you're reading along, um, in Genesis, uh, everybody who's anybody has a genealogy. Anybody doing the Bible reading plan at any point, you're like, yes, yes, there are genealogies in in Genesis. But when you get to chapter 14, I believe three chapters already have been genealogies, 5, 10, and 11. So three out of the first 13 chapters of Genesis covering about 2,000 plus years, three of those chapters have been just genealogies. So-and-so was so old when he had this son and then he died at this age. He was this old when he had this child and he died at this age, over and over, over and over. So all the important characters in Genesis, all the significant characters, have not just a little information. You have their entire genealogy, going back to Adam and Eve. So just keep that in mind, and, and I'll just sort of—I'm not going to read every verse because it gets it, the, the names in verses one through seven will make our heads spin. I, I won't pronounce them. But here's—let here, me just summarize. So you, here's what's happening. You got this king, Keterleomer, or Chederleomer, maybe he was a fan of cheese, I don't know. But Keterleomer uh, is this king, my wife's looking at me like, why do you say these things? <laughs> Keterleomer, he, he kind of makes a, a group of, he has an alliance with with three other kings. There's four kings who are very strong, and they come down south, and they're threatening other kings and trying to take uh, money almost as a like, tax type thing. And these other uh kings, the five kings, I believe, they fight back against Keterleomer. It's been 12 years of his oppression. They're sick of this guy. Get together, five kings, and they go fight against him, and he beats them. But here's the thing. Abraham, remember? Abraham is a nephew. Starts with an L. What's his name? Lot. Remember, he's called Lot because he's a lot of trouble. I love saying that. So, (laughs) Lot, he moves, not original with me, he moves over near Sodom and Gomorrah. Again, if you're a nation, let's not go near Sodom and Gomorrah. So he ends up living with the Sodom and Gomorrah crowd. And when Sodom and Gomorrah are two of the kings fighting against Keter-laomer, they lose the battle. So Lot gets taken captive with his family. And the share of the men who went with me, let Enner, Eskel, and Mamre take their share. Now, you could honestly leave Melchizedek out of this chapter, and the story still flows and makes Pretty much complete sense. You're, you're, nothing is vital to the narrative to leave this part in, verses uh, 18 to 20. And so, the mystery is, is this guy Melchizedek? He appears out of the blue, no genealogy, no mention of his ancestry. He appears out of the blue, seems to be in high favor with Abraham, Abram at this time, and then he disappears, and he doesn't appear again for a thousand years. He gets mentioned again in Psalm one ten a thousand years later, and then he's gone again for a thousand years and doesn't show up till Hebrews. And so, kind of, who is this guy and what's happening? So, Tyler, lead us through some of this.
1: Okay. Um, so, Melchizedek does kind of just awkwardly show up. I mean, it's really out of nowhere. Um, which is actually intentional by the author Moses here, I think. Uh, Moses placing him in here is actually giving us some importance, which is going to be picked up later. And we see that with the fact that he blesses Abraham. So, the fact that Melchizedek blesses Abraham seems to show some type of significance to this character, but as Mark has already mentioned, within the book of Genesis, which is an entire book about genealogies, anyone who is anybody has a genealogy. And so the fact that Melchizedek shows up with a very important role with Abram at this time without a genealogy makes you scratch your head as a reader. You're supposed to catch that. And so he ends up blessing Abram, We see that he is a king of Salem, which is um, very likely Jerusalem at that time, um, based on the the wordplay there and some historical documents. Um, He gives bread and wine, and he's a priest and a king. And so we start to see, with Moses writing here, this kind of priestly king kind of combination with God Most High, with the one true living God. Um, And so, anything else you want to add? Yeah, no,
0: just going with what you said. Um, that word Salem is only used twice in the Hebrew Old Testament. I didn't know this until this week. I looked it up. Uh, the word Salem, just by itself, only used twice. The other time, you don't have to turn there, but just listen to this. This is Psalm 76, 1 and 2. Now, just listen to the, the wording. In Judah, God is known. His name is great in Israel. His abode has been established in Salem, his dwelling place in Zion. So, the only other use of Salem in the Bible is clearly Jeru- Salem no question about it. So, very likely, Melchizedek is the king of Jerusalem long before the Davidic monarchy was living in Jerusalem, which makes him an intriguing figure on top of these other things. So, I'm borrowing a lot here from Don Carson, his thoughts on this, but I think this is helpful. Where would David get an idea that something special is going on with Melchizedek? Now, I will admit, we are using our our imagination here, so this is not, I'm just, I'm, it's a guess. But this makes some sense to me. When David became king, we're told in Deuteronomy 17 that every king of Jerusalem should have their own written copy of the law, the Torah, and they should read it every day, like their devotions, every day, so that they could be careful to obey all that's written therein as they lead the people. So David, a man after God's own heart, I am sure obeyed that. That he, he had his own copy of the Torah, he was literate, he was highly literate. The, the poet of Israel, and he would have been reading his devotions. He would have been reading the Bible daily. Now, when you think Bible, you think this, right? His Bible, slightly shorter than yours, his Bible was about that big, okay? Because he had basically, I mean… He didn't have 1st and 2nd Samuel because he was sort of living those, right? He didn't have kings. That's after David. He had had some psalms because he just wrote them yesterday, right? And so maybe he had access to Job. That's possible. But, I mean, we're talking a very small Bible, basically the Pentateuch, the first five books, maybe Joshua, maybe Judges, maybe Ruth, but but not much, okay? So when he's reading his Bible, do you think he knows Genesis pretty well? He reads it every day, and he's only got a handful of books, okay? I mean... Bible study would be easier if it was a lot shorter, right? You just have a few books to get to, get to know. So David would have been intimately aware of every pen stroke of the, of the Pentateuch. Just absolutely knew the books of Moses backwards. And so he's reading through Genesis over and over and over, over 40 years, right? I mean, he knows his Genesis. And Carson speculates, and I think this is certainly possible. Think about this. David becomes king, and he's not living in Jerusalem. He's living in Hebron. For the first seven years of his 40 year reign, the first seven years, the the kingdom is not centrally located in Jerusalem. But after seven years, he takes the city of Jerusalem and relocates the center, the capital, in Jerusalem. And. This is early in 2 Samuel. Then he gets the Ark of the Covenant, remember, transported from another city to Jerusalem. Remember, Uzzah touches the Ark and dies during the transportation. So it ends up taking a few extra months because there's people dying and David's getting nervous, like, okay, we're not doing this the right way. So they finally get the Ark to Jerusalem. And this is the first time in the history of Israel you've got now the king in Jerusalem, the capital in Jerusalem, and now the tabernacle with the Holy of Holies is in Jerusalem. This is the first time ever. We think of it as we take it for granted. It's always Jerusalem. It had not always been Jerusalem. So seven years into his reign, David's, I am mean, imagining he's reading Genesis. He's the king in Jerusalem, king of God most high. The tabernacle's right there. The Holy of Holies is right there. The priesthood is right next to him. And he's reading Genesis, and, uh, he's reading Genesis 14. And let me just try to imagine what he's seeing here. So, so look again at verse 18 of Genesis 14. And Melchizedek. We will see this all unfold in Hebrews, but I'll go ahead and say this. I'm not going to pronounce the the words correctly, but in Hebrew, you can help me with pronunciation, Melech or something like that is the word for king, and the word Zedek or a word close to that is the word for righteousness. Sounds about right. I'm probably not quite right. Close. So the word Melchizedek, literally, it's made up of two words that mean king of righteousness. That's what Melchizedek means. Who are you? I'm the king of righteousness. Wow, that's pretty cool. So his name means king of righteousness. He's also the king of Salem. Well, remember, Salem, think... Shalom. It means peace. Okay? It means peace. So, this king, David's reading his devotions. This guy, he is the king of righteousness. He's the king of Jerusalem, which means the king of peace. Oh, my goodness. Look at verse 18. He brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. Now, that had to have stumped David. Saul got in some trouble for it seems like mixing the role of king and priest. And Uzziah later gets in enormous trouble for mixing the role of king and priest. In the Levitical law, in Moses' law, it was a no-no. You do not mix these two. The kings of David's line were from the tribe of Judah, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And the priests were from the tribe of Levi, Leviticus, right? So you can't mix the two. You can't be a Levite and a a Jew in the sense of from Judah. You, You can't be both of those at the same time. So David is sitting here looking at this going, okay, the king of Jerusalem is also the priest of God Most High, and he doesn't seem like a bad guy. He seems like a very good guy. In fact, let's look at it, verse 19. And he blessed him. So Melchizedek blessed Abraham and said, blessed be Abraham by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth... And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand, and Abram gave him a tenth of everything." So Tyler, what are some of the significant things about the blessing and the tithe?
1: Yeah, well, um, to bless someone and to tithe someone, um, that's a huge honor in terms of… Melchizedek obviously is… the author of Hebrews is going to pick up on is in a sense of being greater than Abraham in this setting because… Melchizedek is the one who blessed Abraham, right? And Abraham was the one who gave tithes to Melchizedek. So it shows this concept that the author of Hebrews is going to pick up on this, this idea of one being greater and one being lesser. Um, it's, I mean, all the author of Hebrews is really doing in chapter 7 is just really expositing and exegeting Genesis 14 and Psalm 110. That's really all he's doing. If you want a good summary of Genesis 14 regarding Melchizedek, just read Hebrews 7, 1 through 3. Um, but if you notice, what is surrounding the Melchizedekian concept here? And I, I, and I do think Melchizedek was a real historical figure, um, a real king, priest of um, Jerusalem. But if you notice, Moses is deliberately talking about kings here in Genesis 14. And you have several mentions of kings. You have a battle with kings. You have... Um, If you look at verse 17, uh, the valley of kings. So you have this strong kind of push here by Moses really indicating this concept of kingliness, right? So I think Moses here is pointing towards what it means to be a true king. And if you notice as well, surrounding this chapter, you have Genesis 12 and Genesis 15. Does anyone know what's in those two chapters? Abrahamic covenant, right? So you have the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 12, and then Genesis 15, and then again in Genesis 17, and so on. And what's interesting is within that, uh, Moses writes and records that Yahweh promises to give Abraham land, seed, and blessing. He's going to multiply his descendants. He's going to give him offspring. He's going to possess the land. They're going to be a great nation. Eventually, he says that they're going to have uh, rulers and kings coming from his line. And then what's interesting is right kind of tucked in the middle here, Moses is kind of giving this little you know, prefix of kind of this merging of the two, this, this king and, and priest concept that David is ultimately going to build upon. Um, but if you notice within these promises of Genesis, what is another very strong connection with the king and Abrahamic covenant? Um, anyone have any idea? Genesis 49, verse 10, right? That the scepter will not part from the one that comes from the tribe of Judah. And so what's interesting is when you notice the scepter language, what does David pick up on in Psalm 110? Let's read. The Lord says to my Lord, set at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord will stretch out your strong scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power and holy array. From the womb of the dawn, your youth are to you as the dew. What's interesting is David here records this concept of the scepter in close relationship to the Messiah, which is a direct connection back to Genesis 49 verse 10, which is also including based on the similar language of Psalm 2. So it's, it's kind of pulling together this Davidic covenant with the Abrahamic covenant. Because if you turn to Second Samuel chapter 7, um, you'll see uh, very strong uh, connections with these two psalms. Just really quick, I know we have a lot to cover tonight. Um, but one quick look at this second samuel chapter 7 verse 8 now therefore thus you shall say to my servant david thus says yahweh of hosts i took you from the pasture from following the sheep to the be ruler over my people israel i have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you and i will make you a great name Like the names of the great men who are on the earth, I will also appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again, nor will the wicked afflict them any more as formerly. Even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people, Israel, I will give you rest from all your enemies. Yahweh also declares that you, that Yahweh will make you a house for you. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will rise up your descendant which is literally the word "seed" um, after you, and you will come forth from. They will come forth through me, and I will establish this kingdom. Now, if you notice, within this covenant, there's clear connections back to the Abrahamic covenant. Right? You have promises of land, you have the promises of blessing, you have the promises of a great name, which is also within the Abrahamic covenant. You have um, the ruler, the king. So it's, it's stretching back to not only Genesis 49.10, but also the Abrahamic covenant. And so when David's writing Psalm 110, and he's obviously speaking about the Messiah, right? Because he says, the Lord said to my Lord. So it's, as Mark said, it, he's speaking of one greater than him, but yet is his son. So how does that quite work? So this is obviously a messianic psalm without question. And it's obviously written by David without question because our Lord says that in Matthew 22 as well as the subscript above. And so you see this kind of merging these kind of concepts together with these two covenants, which is going to set us up for what the author of Hebrews is doing in chapter Uh, 7. Anything else you want to cover while we're here?
0: That's fantastic. Uh, that, that's really good. So again, David in context, living in Jerusalem, peace from his enemies, and then he gets the promise from God: one of your your sons are going to be eternally on the throne. And uh, David is blown away by that promise and uh, has been is definitely meditating on that. In fact, if you look um, at Second Samuel seven verse eighteen, David's response is one of real humility. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, "Who am I?" O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great great while to come, and this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God, because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make uh, your servant know it. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God, and there is none like you, and there is no God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And on he goes. But David is astounded by the promise that his dynasty will last forever through his offspring. Ultimately, that is obviously going to be Jesus at the end. And so now let's, let's turn to Psalm 110 again. Psalm 110, And just so you can sort of see, that the psalm has two strong statements from the Lord to David's son, the Messiah. You get two, one in verse 1 and one in verse 4. So let's just read them again because these are the most quoted verses, and these are very often quoted in the New Testament. Psalm 110.1, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And then number two is in verse 4, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, let's go back to the picture of David reading Genesis, and he reads the story, and he's trying to understand what's the significance of this. Did David know that the Levitical system was not the final word from the Lord? I think he did. I think he did because he doesn't say here, the, 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 Le- the Levitical priests will last forever. He doesn't say that. Instead, he says, you're a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Um, you know, It's interesting, I, I won't, we will not want to all turn there, there's a lot of flipping around, but I just I, in, in Exodus 29, just listen to this, to, to how the animal sacrifice would work back in this time period. Verse 38 of Exodus 29 says this, now this is what you shall offer on the altar. Two lambs, a year old, day by day, regularly. So, this was every day. Not just, the, not just the Day of Atonement or the Passover. This was every day in Israel, two lambs were killed. One every morning, one every evening. Verse 39, one lamb you shall offer in the morning, and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. It shall be a regular burnt offering throughout your generations at the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord, where I will meet with you to speak with you there. There I will meet with the people of Israel, and it shall be sanctified by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the, altar of, uh, and the altar. Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests. I will dwell among the people of Israel and be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. For, God, for, for Israel to maintain continual uh, communion with the Lord... Not just Passover, not just Day of Atonement, but every single morning at sunrise, a lamb was killed a year old, every single morning year round. And every single evening at sunrise, an, an, a sun, at sun, uh, when the sun was going down, they would kill another lamb that was a year old. And this happened every day, rain, sleet, or shine, every year, throughout your generations. This is the way it was. And so if you were part of Israel, especially if you are in the priesthood, Every morning, you're seeing a lamb killed every evening, every morning, every evening, every morning, every evening. Just imagine that. This is year round all the time throughout your generations. And David is probably beginning to pick up on some things. Number one is there's something incomplete about this system, it's never satisfied. Every day, there's new sin and there's new sacrifices. Every day we're killing another lamb in the morning, and before the day is over, we need another lamb to be killed just to maintain our access to God, just so God who's holy can dwell with an unholy people continuously in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle or later in the temple. You've got to kill an animal this constantly because we're always sinning and we always need atonement. Well, if the animals were actually eliminating sin, you would just do one day of atonement and the deal would be done The priests would have a much shorter job. They would sit down and relax because they killed the one sacrifice. Now we can just sort of sit back and maybe they would pray for the people, but we're done with animal sacrifices. But David is observing the animal sacrifices going on nearby, and he sees this is an unbroken, never-ending system where clearly we are always at fault and we always need help and we always need fresh blood and atonement, and David knows something's not quite right. In fact. David's infamous sin, adultery, murder, Bathsheba, Uriah. David says in Psalm 51, you know, if it was animals that you wanted, I'd give it to you. You don't want that. We all know the blood of bulls and goats does not actually merit the removal of sin on its own. We, we all know that. David looks at adultery and murder and goes, killing a lamb? Not going to erase the Bathsheba thing. Killing Uriah, not going to get erased by killing an animal. He just knew that. So there's numerous times in the Old Testament where there's this longing for something more. And he says, a broken and contrite heart, you will not despise, Things, things of that nature. But David seems to see a thousand years before Jesus that we need something greater than the Levitical priesthood can possibly provide at the time that he's writing. And he says, wait a second, you mean there's a priesthood? and the kingship that goes together in Jerusalem that predates the Mosaic law and predates Abraham and seems to be something greater than what we've got access to right now. And under inspiration, he says, well, the coming Messiah is not just going to be a king in my line. He's going to be a priest not after the order of Levi and Aaron. He's going to be a priest after a better order of priesthood, the, the priest after the order of Melchizedek. So with that, let's… Or, or well, just anything else just one thing, uh,
1: David's not the only one who has this concept. Ezekiel in the exile, um, chapters 12-19, through 19, specifically in chapters 14 and 19, if you start reading at verse 1 of chapter 14 in Ezekiel, you'll find that Ezekiel is pretty much, by the word of Yahweh, is saying, you priests, you've set up idols in your heart of false gods. So you, theologically, have failed as the priest, and in chapter 19… Yahweh addresses the princes or the kings of Israel and essentially saying, you have failed as a king. And and so essentially what's going on in Ezekiel 12 through 19 is Yahweh is calling out both the priests and the kings of Israel and saying, you're not fulfilling what you're meant to do. You may be operating in terms of existing in your role, but you are not fulfilling the theological requirements that are required for a priest and then a king. But what's interesting is in chapter uh, 21, verse 26, if you start there in Ezekiel and read down, Yahweh will actually say in verse 27 that in verse 26, remove the turban and remove the crown, which is a reference to both the priest and the king, right? So the turban was worn by the high priest and the crown worn by the king, obviously. But in chapter, in verse 27 of chapter 21 of Ezekiel, Yahweh actually says, remove those until... He comes, until the Messiah comes and actually joins these two together. So what's interesting is David's seeing these things in Psalm 110. The prophets uh, pick up on this as well. Ezekiel does it, uh, Jeremiah does it in chapter uh, 20 and 22, verse 1 of both of those. And then does the same thing as Ezekiel does in chapter 23, by like showing how these two will be harmonized in the Messiah with his reference to branch. And another reference, if you're taking notes, is Zechariah 6, verses 12 through 13, which will show very clearly that the Messiah will join these two. And so it's not just this concept that when the Messiah comes, these two are going to be joined. It's that it that needs to be joined. In order for Israel to actually function, and in order for God's people to actually dwell with God the way God intended, you actually need a true ruler, a true king, a true priest who is one and the same, and that is the Messiah. And the author of Hebrews is actually going to show that, not pulling things out of thin air, but he's actually deriving what David picked up on, what Moses picked up on, and what the prophets picked up on as well, is that there's this need for the two categories to merge. But as Mark has already mentioned, within the Mosaic system, the king and the priest can't merge. Mm-hmm. That's against the law. You can't merge the two, so there has to be some other way that the two merge together to actually fulfill all the covenants in what is the new covenant. And that's what we'll see in the Messiah, and that the author of Hebrews will point out.
0: That's great. So turn, turn with us to Hebrews chapter uh, 7, we'll start with the tail end of Hebrews 6. Uh, so Hebrews, the very end of chapter 6, where we left off last week. Hebrews 6, verse… Uh, we will start in verse 19. Hebrews six nineteen. The author says, we, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. I almost start laughing here because the author has tried to get to Melchizedek at least once or twice already, and he keeps getting detoured by issues that are going on with the, with the church. So he had gotten there at the end of chapter 5, he brought up Melchizedek, and then he said, my guess is most of you guys uh, don't know what I'm talking about. So he stops and sort of explains things for a while, now he's finally back after another chapter to get to Melchizedek, which is a central point in the book of Hebrews. And we're, we're going to look and see what, he, what Tyler was just describing. It is a careful, well-reasoned walkthrough of Genesis and Psalm 110. It just, it's very careful. And um, before we start reading it, I just want to throw this out there. You know, sometimes we get this idea that the, the Bible just sort of one day fell out of the sky, which is like someone's walking down the road and, whoa, what is this? So It's the Word of God. Uh, the New Testament authors were very aware, not just that the Old Testament was inspired, but they were aware when the things in the Old Testament were written in relationship to each other. And that really matters. It's not just like, um, I mean, this is not quite the right way to say it, but I think you'll understand what I mean. Sometimes people think the whole Bible is like the book of Proverbs. Like, just pick a verse kind of stuff. Like, almost like, I, I'm, I'm being a little disparaging to Proverbs, and I shouldn't be. But you, you know what I mean? Like, it's kind of like, it feels like sort of like random, pithy statements that are put next to each other. And it's like, the Bible is just a bunch of cool verses. And you can just find a verse. And like, we have verse of the day and all that. And that's fine that we have verse of the day, absent things. But my point is that we tend to just read the Bible as isolated sentences. The New Testament authors read them as part of redemptive history, and what comes first affects what comes later. The fact that the promise of redemption that you described to Abraham, does that come before or after Mount Sinai and the law of Moses? The promise to Abraham comes before. Is that significant to Paul in Galatians? Yeah, his whole understanding of the gospel versus legalism is to understand the promise came before the law. It affects everything. If it was flipped backwards, we would have a different gospel entirely. It would be a very different thing. So the author of Hebrews is very much not just reading the Old Testament seriously. He's reading it in, in context of history, in terms of redemptive history. Now, if that doesn't make sense, what I'm saying is he's very aware that Genesis comes before David and David comes before Jesus. And that affects the way he reads it. So let's look at it. Hebrews 7.1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, that's just what Genesis says, priest of God most high, just what Genesis says, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness, that's correct. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of... Peace, shalom. Okay, so, so far, he's just simply reading Genesis 14 and saying what's obviously there. It's not even controversial. It's just that's the meaning of the text. Now he begins to get into interpretive issues. Verse 3. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God... He continues a priest forever. Um, With this verse, there's a big debate amongst genuine Christians, and I will go ahead and say this, this is one of those things Christians can happily agree to disagree and have a friendly debate about. It's not like a a hill to die on. But a lot of Christians think that that Melchizedek is the pre-incarnate Jesus. That, that Jesus came in human form before the incarnation, and that he is Melchizedek. And that's why it says, without beginning of days or end of life. Um, and so, I very much respect that position, and I understand why a lot of Christians historically have taken that position. And it could be correct, but I doubt it. Okay, and it is again, not a hill to die on, but, but I, I am of the persuasion that when it says Melchizedek resembles the Son of God, If He was the Son of God, you wouldn't say He's like Him. You would say He is Him. He could have just said, Melchizedek, without beginning or days of end of life, He is the Son of God forever. And he could have very easily made a one-to-one connection. But instead, he says, Melchizedek resembles the Son of God. So, so I I think that he sees Melchizedek as an Old Testament type, you know, pointing forward to foreshadowing uh, the the work of Jesus. Tell me anything about the genealogy, because i
1: yeah, I mean, this, this is just a good hermeneutical lesson for us. The author of Hebrews is drawing out on what is not mentioned in the Genesis text, and sometimes what's not mentioned in a text is just as important as what is mentioned in a text. So basically what the author of Hebrews is teaching us here is proper exegesis. It teaches us how to read our Bible, right? So by reading through the book of Genesis and understanding the context, cause, I mean, let's be honest, there's hundreds and thousands of people in the Old Testament whose genealogies are not mentioned. They're not mentioned at all. We've discussed that already. But no one with any significance within the book of Genesis is mentioned without genealogy. And the author of Hebrews picks up on that. He picks up on what's not mentioned in Genesis. And that's all he's saying. I agree with Mark. I don't think Melchizedek is a pre-incarnate Christ. For he was made like the Son of God there and then later in in, Genesis chapter seven, Melchizedek is, or Jesus is like Melchizedek in that sense. Um, And so I think the author of Hebrews here is just simply drawing out the fact that Melchizedek just kind of pops up on the scene, like a cameo uh, of some actor in a movie. He just, he's there one minute and he's gone the next and you're left kind of wondering, who is this guy? Okay, great. And then he pops up again in Psalm 110. And so it's like the sequel of the movie. But I mean, there's nothing inherently like super, super mystical with this. It's just... The author of Hebrews is just reading Genesis and interpreting Genesis from a biblical hermeneutic of just simple exegesis. He's just reading what is there and communicating that, and it teaches us how to read our Bibles. I think that's a big drawaway from this um, that we may not think to notice or think about.
0: Yeah, just on that point, and Carson mentioned this, um, arguments from silence, like Tyler's mentioning, they can be very weak. Uh, you can be very dangerous using an argument from silence. But what Tyler's getting at and what the author of Hebrews is getting at is sometimes silence is very loud. And he, Carson mentions the Sherlock Holmes story. Do you remember the, the dog that goes bark in the night? Some of you may remember this. So the, 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 I, I don't remember the whole context, but the basic point there being this dog uh, always barks when a stranger is near. And when the criminal, whoever it was, went into the house that night near the dog, the dog did not bark which means the dog knew the person who did the crime. And the dog always barks when an unknown person is there. The dog did not bark when the criminal was there, therefore the dog knew the criminal. And so sometimes silence is a big deal when you expect noise, right? When you expect something to be verbal, physical there, and it's not there, it can be very loud. And like you said, if, if there's a genealogy for everybody who's anybody in Genesis, and then this guy shows up, who in a sense is greater than Abraham, and we don't get a word about his genealogy. That is a very loud silence. It, it, is, a, it is a meaningful silence. It's not a random silence. It's a significant, meaningful uh, silence. And uh, now we're going to get into this, uh, this how uh, he, he's greater than Abraham. Because that may sound strange to all of us. He's greater than Abraham. Look at verse 4. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the the one case, tithes are received by mortal men. But in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives, one might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now, that sounds like a bunch of mumbo-jumbo when you first read it. I mean, the first time you read that, you're like, what is he saying? I mean, just put this simply. The person blessing is greater than the person being blessed. Remember just like the father was greater than the son with David? This is now, if you're blessing the others, who blesses fathers or sons in the patriarchal narrative? It's Abraham blessing Isaac. It's not Isaac blessing Abraham. That would make no sense. It's Isaac blessing Jacob. It's not Jacob blessing Isaac. And it's Jacob blessing the 12 tribes. It's not the 12 blessing him. You get this? So the greater is blessing the lesser. Well, you don't get greater than Father Abraham, who had many sons. I could break into a chorus right now. Fred and I, we should sing it right now. Father Abraham had many sons. Uh, we, we can do the hand motions and everything. So you, you don't get greater than Father Abraham. He is the father of all the Jews, which makes him the greatest Jew. I mean, obviously, Jesus is greater. We're getting to that. But I'm saying so far as descendancy, Abraham is the greatest Jewish person in all of history because he's the patriarch of all of them. He's the, he's the greatest and he doesn't bless Melchizedek. Melchizedek, the mysterious Melchizedek, the cameo, comes in, he blesses Abraham, who has the promises. That makes Melchizedek, by definition, in a status greater than Abraham. That's mind-blowing. You don't get much greater than Abraham in anywhere in the Bible until you get to Jesus. How is it that this guy is blessing, Abraham is inferior to Melchizedek. Some commentators even said, it's almost as though for this moment, Melchizedek is functioning as Abraham's priest before God. He's the priest, he's the king and the priest, blessing Abraham. He's almost the go-between between Abraham and Yahweh. It's all it's like, what is happening here? And then Abraham tithes to Melchizedek. Again, inferior Abraham giving the tithe to the superior uh, Melchizedek. So in two ways, Melchizedek is greater than the greatest Jew who ever lived, as far as that mindset is. Okay, now we've got a mystery on our hands. What is going on? What, what, is this, what does this actually mean? And then the author has our favorite phrase. I'm sure this is your all favorite phrase. For Levi was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Let us pray. Okay, what, what do you do with that verse? Levi was in the loins of his ancestor. When, what does that mean? Well, clearly this is the idea. You know, when, when Adam fell, guess who else fell? All of his children, right? This is solidarity. When, when was it? Was it? Is it, uh, in, is it Achan who takes the, steals the goods at AI and Ai and his whole family gets killed? Is it Achan? Achan. Achan commits a sin as the patriarch, the father of his family, and his family suffers the consequences with him, with solidarity with with the father. Well, here, Abraham is not just Abraham. He represents all of his descendants. Father Abraham had many sons. One of those sons is Levi, right, and Aaron. The, The whole priesthood comes from Abraham. So what Abraham does, in a sense, his children do through him. You say, what's the big deal? That means the entire Levitical priesthood, Is subservient to Melchizedek because he's blessing Abraham, the father of the Levites, and Abraham's giving a tithe to Melchizedek, representing also the Levites. So now we've got a huge issue. As David and these authors are reading this, they're going, This guy's not just a king priest, he's not just king of Salem, Jerusalem, he's not just king of righteousness and king of peace. He's greater than Abraham, and his priesthood, by definition, is greater than the entire priesthood of Leviticus and the Mosaic law, by definition. And so David is going, if there is going to be a king priest in the future, he can't come from the order of Levi and Aaron. He's a, the Messiah is from Judah, not from Levi. He's a Judahite, not a Levite. So he can't be a priest through the Mosaic law. But what if there's a superior priesthood? and a superior kingship. What if the Messiah is a king through David's line, but a priest, priest through the order, not of Levi, but of Melchizedek? That would allow him to be king and priest without breaking any rules, and it makes him greater than all the priests in the Old Testament. And you see, he's not making this up and putting it in the text, you see? The author of Hebrews is clearly reading this from the, from the basic implications of what's going on in Genesis in Psalm 110. Anything on that, Tyler? No. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Let's keep going, yeah. for the sake of time. So, um, verse 11, can you start uh, yeah. reading there?
1: Now, perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of, of it the people received the law. What further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek, and not be designated according to the order of Aaron? For when the priesthood is changed, of necessity there takes place a change of law also. For the one concerning whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, a tribe with reference to which Moses spoke nothing concerning priests. And this is clear still if another priest arises according to the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become such not on the basis of, law of, of, of a law of physical requirement, but according to the power of an indestructible life. For it is attested of him, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, what the author is going to do here in verses 11 and following is actually going to show why and how the order of Melchizedek is actually a greater and more superior uh, le- priesthood than the Levitical priesthood. And he does that, one, by what Mark just mentioned with this concept of uh, blessing and tithing. But he also does it with, if you notice in verse 11, now of perfection, which should be understood as the idea of completion. Not moral perfection, but this idea of, of fulfillment, of, of completeness. Um, and now, of perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it, the people received the law. Does everyone see that the author of Hebrews now just joins the law with the Levitical priesthood? They're inseparable. So to to understand one, to understand Levitical priesthood, you have to understand the law. To understand the law, you understand the Levitical priesthood. They go uh, together without separation. And so what further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be designated according to the order of Aaron? Essentially what the author is saying here is if the Levitical system was so great, if it actually worked, If the sacrifices done each day and each night actually completed and actually fulfilled what it was designed to do from the most common rabbinical understanding of that time, then why do you need another priesthood? Why mention another priesthood? David should have just mentioned you'll be a priest forever after the order of Levi but he doesn't. He says after the order of Melchizedek. So David purposely saying that is actually setting up and showing not only the problem he saw in the system, but the system itself is designed to point forward to actually running into the new covenant, running into a new system. By definition, the law forces you to go forward into this system, into this covenant um, system. Yeah,
0: that's that's very helpful. And so um, let's keep going here. Verse uh, 18. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath, but this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever." So sort of drawing this, trying to draw this somewhat uh, together, now he's doing what Hebrews always does. He's just comparing Levitical priests with this new Mel- Melchizedekian priest. I can barely say it. So he's taking Jesus, the, the priest from Melchizedek, and he's taking Levi and he's comparing them. And he goes, okay, you might think the Levites are better because there's so many of them. Doesn't that seem better? when you want to have a lot of thousands of priests rather than just one? I mean, doesn't, doesn't the large number give you an advantage? And he says, no, the reason there are so many is because, frankly, they keep dying. <laughs> and then a the son has to take over for the father. And then why do they die? Because they're sinners. Well, you know what that means? They have to actually offer sacrifices first for themselves. I think that's in Leviticus 16. They have to offer sacrifices for the, their own sins. And then those are the people. But Jesus never sinned. So his sacrifice is given once for all, not repeatedly. His sacrifice finishes the job. Theirs is never complete. He sits down at the right hand of the Father. They're always standing because they've always got work to do, always new sin to try to atone for. Jesus does it once for all and sits. He's finished with his job in that sense. Now he prays for us. Jesus died once as the sacrifice. He doesn't bring the sacrifice. He is the sacrifice. He dies once as the spotless lamb in our place to take away sin. And now he's resurrected never to die again. And and at this point, I don't think that, and this is, again, debatable matter here. I don't think that Melchizedek is is an angel or Jesus, although that's that's a debatable point. I I think that he's a, a human being. I think he did have father and mother. I think he did have a genealogy. I think he was born and he did die. And you say, you're contradicting the text. No, no, no. This is the point. So far as the text in Genesis gives us the terminology, if he is going to represent what Jesus is going to do, they leave out birth, death, genealogy, because he is meant to symbolize an eternal person. So he's not an eternal person, but he symbolizes by the absence of a genealogy or mention of birth or death, he symbolizes an eternal priesthood. Um, and and that, in that way, he points to Jesus, who at his resurrection has an indestructible life that will never perish. This allows Jesus to qualify for a priesthood after the order of Melchizedek, because he will never die again. He, he's alive forever, and, and he is the one who, to whom we can draw near. And just look with me here at verse 25, because this is of great comfort. Consequently, he, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost, completely, at all times, those who draw near to God through Him since He always lives to make intercession for them. So Jesus may not be offering any more sacrifices. That's over. Once, and it's over. But He is ever-living to make intercession for His people. So, right, I mean, you may have heard Robert Murray McShane, the famous pastor, said, if you could hear Jesus praying in the next room over from you, you would not fear a thousand enemies, but He is praying for you. Right now, at this moment, Jesus is sitting in His human body, glorified, still God and man, still will, He will always be God and man forever. He didn't leave His humanity behind at the resurrection. He just took it up glorified, and He will forever be the God man. And right now, a human being with flesh and bones is sitting next to God the Father, whatever that all exactly means. And he is at this very moment praying and interceding for, our, for the people of God, and his prayers guarantee that your mistakes, my mistakes, and sins do not get the last word on our lives. He's pleading his blood. He's pleading his righteousness, First John. I'm writing these things that you may not sin, but, oh, I love that. I'm writing these things that you may not sin. John, we don't want to sin, but we still sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate. Jesus Christ, what? The righteous, who is the propitiation, the wrath bearer of our sins, and not for ours only, but for the whole world. It's a, it, it, this is available to anyone who wants it in all the world. And right now, Jesus is pleading his blood and righteousness before God. And God the Father is not opposed to this. It's not like God the Father is angry and Jesus is is compassionate. God sent the Son. So God is in favor of this intercession, and and this intercession is is what the the, the Lord Jesus is doing now. No more atonement, but but He is ever living to make intercession uh, for us. One
1: thing on on verse 25, Uh, therefore He is able to save forever those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. Does everyone see the, the phrase there, draw near? If you also have that again up at verse uh, 19. And on the other hand, there is a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. That term draw near there is actually a, a priestly phrase. It refers only exclusively really uh, to the priest drawing near to God in the Holy of Holies. Now what's interesting is we draw near. We actually have now access through Jesus, Through the Messiah, we have access to draw near to God in a way that no one in history has ever been able to draw near to God before. I mean, consider that. The high priest was the only Israelite who could ever draw near to God. He could only draw near to God one time a year. And he goes into the Holy of Holies, he sprinkles the blood, and he runs out of there, basically. He doesn't spend time in the Holy of Holies. But we, as believers in Christ and through Christ, we can actually draw near to Christ because we have a better hope. He actually brings in a better hope. He ushers in. He he starts a better hope because... He is the guarantee of a better covenant. Why is he a a guarantee of this covenant? One, because he's of the order of Melchizedek. He's of a greater priestly order. Second, look at verse 21. For they indeed became priests without an oath, but he with an oath through the one who said to him, Yahweh has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Notice this quote here. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. It would have been enough to just say, Yahweh has sworn. Because in chapter 6, right, the author of Hebrews says, God could not swear by anyone greater, so he swore by himself. And what's interesting is God only swears twice in Scripture, once to Abraham and once to his son, right, in Psalm 110. But the author David says, and he will not change his mind. That is firmer, like, that's more underscoring, that's emphatic on, you have an absolute guarantee that Jesus Christ will cause you to draw near, cause you to have a better covenant, cause you to have a better hope, because God has not only sworn, but he will not change his mind. That is completely emphatic. I mean, for, again, for God to swear is enough, because he cannot lie. But for him never to change his mind is to say, I will never go back on my word. I will fulfill the promise of Abraham, and I will fulfill the promise of David, and I will fulfill the promise of the new covenant through the Messiah. Such more, also Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant because the former priests, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were not, they were prevented by death from continuing. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Verse 23 and verse 24 go together as a pair. It's a pair of contrasts. Notice, former priests, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death, right? Christ actually lives forever, So you have the original priests who actually continue to die over and over and over again. But Christ lives forever. They are unable, they were prevented from death from continuing in their intercession. Christ actually continues and permanently holds his priesthood. But notice this, former priests existing in greater number. Does everyone see the contrast with the Levitical system having multiple priests, but this system having how many? One what all the priests in the Levitical system could not do, Mm -hmm. because it was weak and useless. It was limited and it did not profit. What it could not do through its multitude of priests, Jesus Christ did in himself. That is not only exclusivity, that is exaltation beyond any degree. And we've seen that actually in Hebrews 1 verses 1 through 4, where. Jesus is the greater revelation bringer, whereas all of the revelation before him needed multiple prophets to continue to bring this revelation, but yet Jesus Christ, the Son, is actually able to bring in and of himself the culmination of all of God's revelational power. I mean, think about that. This is the exalting of Christ. It's not many, it's one. This is exclusivity. It's only through Jesus Christ that you will ever actually have this guarantee of a better covenant. And it's only through Jesus that he continues forever holding a priesthood permanently to forever intercede for you, to save you forever, or to save you to the uttermost. This salvation is not just a soteriological salvation of present tense. It's an eschatological salvation in that it will actually go to its end. Christ will actually be able to fulfill the promises, not just that he's Not that he can fulfill the promises, but that he will fulfill the promises and he's able to fulfill the promises in and of himself. And it's this Jesus. Notice the author, if you've been paying attention throughout Hebrews, the author very rarely uses Jesus' personal name. He always refers to him as the Christ or the Son. But here he uses his personal name. This means that this rich theology of Christ's intercession and offering you a better hope and a better covenant, that's not just some abstract theological concept. It's personal. Jesus Christ personally relates to you as your high priest, and the question the author is raising here, essentially in your minds, is do you know this Messiah? Do you know this Son? Do you know this Jesus? Because it's this Jesus who, compared to many, can actually fulfill in and of himself for it was fitting for, to have a, such a high priest who is holy, that which is ceremonially pure, innocent, that which is morally pure, and undefiled, meaning he, he cannot be separated from God. Right it's it's a it these these words here relate to the high priest where you, he can't be separated from God he will never be separated from God therefore he's actually able to forever save he's forever able to intercede he's separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens what does that even mean that means he's into the heavens completely separated from sinners meaning nothing will ever hinder his intercession nothing can stop him from interceding for you as a believer in him and so the question is do you know this Jesus Do you know this Messiah, this son, who does not have to, like the other high priest, offer up multiple sacrifices and sacrifices for themselves and their own sin and their family, and then actually make atonement for Israel, but actually offers up one sacrifice once for all, and that for sacrifice actually being himself. Notice the contrast. Jesus Christ is what does verse 28 say? He's not just a high priest, a mere human who's weak. But the word of an oath which came after the law appoints a son made perfect forever, made complete forever. This high priest that we've been discussing for the past several weeks, this Jesus that we've been discussing for the past seven chapters, he is the son. He's in a place of privilege and a place of honor. And that is your high priest. He's actually able to save you forever. He's able to hold you forever. This is not only why we persevere, but this is how we persevere because this Messiah causes us to persevere. You need the ascension of Christ. If Christ never ascended, he was never the Messiah. And if he was never the Messiah and he never ascended, he was never God, which means he's not actually able to complete the promises and fulfill them. But this Jesus is Because he ascended to the right hand of the Father. And he's there until he makes his enemies a footstool. And he comes and judges the earth. It's this Jesus who causes us to persevere till the end. It's this Jesus that we hold to, that we cling to, that we draw unto God with and through. Because it's in this Jesus we actually have the the priestly ministry of all believers. Where you can approach God yourself and you don't need a high priest. You don't need the Catholic Church. You can actually approach God. You can approach Yahweh. In the Holy of Holies, who Jesus passed through the veil. Which again, the high priest, once they passed through, they sprinkled blood and they left. Christ passed through and he stayed. He's in the Holy of Holies in heaven. He's separated from sinners. He's passed on into the heavens. Which means his intercessory work, as I've already said, will never end. Because not only does he live forever, he can't be hindered in that at all. What a great assurance and security we have in this Messiah who constantly intercedes for us because we constantly sin. You need that. I need that. We need that as believers. We need a high priest who can sympathize and empathize with us, and we need one who will constantly forever intercede because he's part of a greater high priestly ministry. This is why the author of Hebrews in chapter 4, verse 14 says, Therefore, since we have such a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. That verse is the thesis statement for the rest of the book. If you want to know how to persevere, I mean, think about it. I mean, everything seems to be going wrong in 2020. But yes, we know God's sovereign. But also, we have a high priest who will cause us to persevere to the end. That's how we persevere. He will maintain us. And we can live confidently each day until He calls us home. It's this that we can actually walk in the steps of those who will appear in chapter 11 in the hall of fame of faith. It's because of Christ. He's the author and perfecter of our faith. He passed on before us, He's the completer. He actually completes and fulfills all the covenant promises. That is huge from a Jewish standpoint because Abraham was great Abraham. David was great. The Levitical priests were good, but if you read through Leviticus, you'll find out very quickly that once the Levitical system started, whose sons died almost immediately? Aaron's, they failed. So right from the get-go, the Levitical system pointed out, Moses was writing, this isn't the all in all. This actually points. I mean, Torah means to point, to teach. It literally means it's to point us to that, which is salvation. It's like a life preserver sign. You don't cling to the sign and say, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to drown. No, the, the sign points you to the actual life preserver that will save you. But you need the sign to tell you where to actually find life. So you need the Old Testament. So don't ever think that you don't need the Old Testament. Don't think that you, for some reason, because you're a Christian in this century and in this era, just need the New Testament. No, you need the Old, because it actually points you to the greatness and the supremacy of Christ. And that's exactly what the author of Hebrews is doing. So cling to Him. Race to Him.
0: Yeah, I, I think that that's very helpful. And, uh we're going to need to wrap up now. Uh, I hope uh, that… I hope it sparks thinking to go back and and work through some of these things uh, in in coming days. I find it just fascinating to study some of these things. uh, As we pray, just last thing I want to say is just why is it important that He's king and priest? If He was only king, uh, He could set the world right and destroy evil. But guess where we would be? We would be part of the destroyed part. And if He was just priest, He could atone for our sin, but He couldn't save the world he's king and priest. He can fix everything that's wrong and save sinners simultaneously in one person. And so that's why he must be both. So let's, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank You for uh, these intriguing passages. Um, certainly, we never feel like we do justice to these kinds of incredible uh, truths. And so I pray that You would just give us a desire to study these more. Uh, thank You, Lord Jesus, that You are Uh, the king that the world needs to set all wrongs right and to bring true justice uh, to to this world. But if You applied Your justice to my life, I would be in outer darkness. And so we thank You that You also have Your own blood that You offer as atonement so that we could be white as snow and that we could survive the final judgment because of Your priestly work and Your intercession and atonement and we can enter into Your new creation that You bring as King and help us to rest in the truth that the God that we serve, our Lord Jesus, is both the King of the world and the only priest who can save. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.